Amen. Praise God for your good singing, and I love the, the picture of that last song as the posture of our hearts as we come to the Word of God. Of course, we're not expecting God's voice to speak audibly to us today, but to come to the words of Scripture, recognizing that these are the words of God. And so we come with humble hearts, ready to learn and to grow and to be shaped by the words of Scripture. Well, as participants in a church, one of the big questions on the minds of churchgoers is often, how does the church grow? And there are all sorts of theories out there about how this happens, right? Uh, That, you know, some surmise that if you build a building, this is how the church grows, right? I think it comes from maybe the famous Iowa movie, Field of Dreams, right? If you build it, they will come. Isn't there something like that in that movie, I think? Anyway, so, right, you build a nice enough, big enough building and the people will just fill it, right? That's how the church grows. Well, that's one theory. Or maybe it's more of a stylistic thing, Right, if you really get a good pulse of the culture around you and you, you just make sure everything you do as a church is cool and in style and uh, you know, at the cutting edge of what's going on in culture, then the church will grow. Or maybe it's just more about what the church has to offer. Right, as long as we have what people want, right? And so we've got a group that meets, uh, you know, and has a focus on this area of life and, and you know, parenting, let's say. And then we've got another group that helps people with their finances. And so as long as we are just meeting all those kind of felt needs with different groups in the church, the church will grow. Right? Now, theorizing about all these things is not necessarily wrong. And and, and the things that I've mentioned can indeed be helpful. And I haven't mentioned all the theories that are out there about church growth. There are plenty more. But what we see in Acts 2 is just this organic, God-empowered growth of the early church. The church has been in existence for mere hours at this point, from the beginning of Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit arrives and baptizes those first believers in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church is born, and immediately then Peter begins answering their question, well, what is this, this work of the Spirit? We hear you speaking in tongues, and he preaches this message. It's a gospel message about the Lord Jesus Christ. And within minutes, and we don't know exactly how long Peter's sermon was, but within minutes, 3,000 people come to Christ. And they're added to the church, and they're baptized. I mean, talk about a church growth scheme. We just need to gather and read Peter's sermon, and then every time, 3,000 people will get saved, and the church will grow, right? This is how it happens. No, what, what becomes obvious in the text is that it's a work of God. We, we know Peter, right? We've, we've studied some of Peter's life when we looked at the Gospel of John together. So we know that in the last 50 days since Christ died and rose again, Peter didn't have some massive transformation and become this like winsome, great preacher, you know, and that's why 3,000 people came to Christ. No, Peter's great. Don't misunderstand me. I'm thankful for Peter. But it's pretty obvious it wasn't Peter. So what was it? 
It was the message about Jesus and the work of the Spirit. The word about Christ, the very message from God about what Jesus had done, that this Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And the work of the Spirit convicting these listeners with the words of Scripture, leading them to faith in Christ. And the church explodes. And so as we consider this text, what I want us to notice far more than anything else is that God multiplies His church. He does it. It's a work of God. The question that falls to us as we study this text is then, well, what do we do to participate? How do we get on board with what God is doing in His church, fulfilling His promise to build His church? You know, do we just read Peter's sermon and hope that 3,000 people, you know, convert to Christ? What, what can we do to participate in the work of God in the church? What's your role in a vibrant, growing church. So our theme today focuses us on God because He's the one who is really doing this. Our theme is this. God uses the message of Jesus and His Spirit to grow a vibrant church. He does it. Through His Word and through His Spirit, God grows the church. Period. End of sentence, you know, we're done. We can close our Bibles and go home, right? No, but we want to dig into this text and consider how do you and I participate? What's our role in what goes on here? And see what we can glean from the work of God in the early church here. The first way we'll answer this question is that the message about Jesus, specifically as we'll see in the text here, as God and Savior calls us to repent. These Jews gathered there on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem hear this message about Christ and they ask, okay, so Jesus is God and Savior, what then shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent, repent. And so we want to dig in and think about what's happening here and what it means for you and I to repent and how we participate in the work of God in the church by responding this way to the word of God. So remember the context as we enter into verse 37 here. Peter's words are still hanging in the air as we read verse 37. Remember how verse 36 closes. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And we remember last week we studied this context and we understood that the word Lord probably refers to the divine name itself. Jesus is God. But not only is He God, He's Christ. And we know that the word Christ meant something special to these Jewish listeners. It's the word Messiah. And the Messiah was both Savior and King. He would redeem the people of Israel. He would save them more than just from uh, oppressive nations, he would save them from their sins. So he's Savior, but he's also King. He would reign over the people of Israel. So this Jesus is both God and Savior. But there's another little phrase in there that adds to the cutting to the heart. Peter reminds them, whom you crucified. 
And this begins to sink into the hearts of these listeners. And I think this is the ministry of the Spirit that Jesus told us about in John 16, that the Spirit would convict the world of sin. And we see it happening here as these listeners begin to realize, He's right. If this Jesus is truly the Messiah, we put Him to death. And so they ask this question of Peter and the other apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do at the end of verse 37 there? I mean, you just hear the conviction in their voices as, they, as it begins to click in their minds and hearts. We've put our Messiah to death. What do we do? What were once hard hearts and stiff necks have become tender hearts and easily turned necks as they hear the words of Scripture from the apostles and as they, the Spirit works in their hearts. They're broken, they're tender, they're teachable. What do we do? So verse 38, Peter gives them the instructions there. Repent. Repent. The word repent means uh, a change of thinking. That's literally how the word is structured. And it often means a change of heart. And the Hebrew, the Old Testament idea of repent, was literally to turn from sin and to turn to God. It's just about face and to head the other direction. And these listeners would have known the Old Testament Scriptures and the word repent would have meant all of that to them. To turn from their sin and to turn to Jesus to believe in this Messiah. And what really weighs on them is the fact that they put Him to death. But Peter encourages them in verse 38 that this leads to the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Two things come through their repentance and faith in Christ. Their sins are washed away and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, as a part of this, he encourages them to be baptized. Not encourages, he commands them to be baptized. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This too was a familiar concept to the Jews. The idea of what they called ritual immersion was a part of their structure of worship within Judaism and had been for centuries. That when something in their life had gone on that made them impure, maybe they had come in contact with a dead body or with blood or with something else that made them ritually impure... They were to be immersed in water. And it was a way of cleansing what had happened and purifying themselves and starting fresh with the Lord. In fact, it was so common that within Jerusalem, they had built a variety of pools in the city so that this ritual immersion could happen in a variety of locations as needed. In fact, uh, the Gospels mention a few of these pools. You may remember the pool of Siloam or the pool of Bethesda. These were ritual immersion pools. When somebody was impure, they'd go down under the water and they'd come back up changed, purified, ritually speaking, ready to worship the Lord again. Well, that idea of this immersion was uh, kind of changed or used a little bit by John the Baptist, John the Immerser, as his name is literally. And uh, he, he would call people to repentance. And then he would baptize them in this baptism of repentance. And what they were saying is that, okay, we're turning from our way of life. We're ready to receive the Messiah when he comes. 
We're turning from our sin and we're ready to receive the Messiah when he comes. And so Jews had become familiar with that kind of baptism. Now Peter is encouraging them to be baptized in a new way. Here, he tells them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Not in repentance, not a ritual immersion, but now in association with the Lord Jesus Christ. So by going under the water and coming back up, they're saying, I'm disassociating with my sin and my former life, my rejection of the Messiah, and now that I've been immersed, I'm showing publicly that I'm identifying with Jesus Christ. I'm attaching myself to Him. I'm publicly showing everyone, yes, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, and I'm ready to live for Him. That's what baptism meant. That's what Peter was encouraging them to do. So he told them first to repent, which was an inward thing, right? Yes, it would lead to outward change, but repentance is an inward action of the heart. And then Peter tells them, now show your repentance by being baptized, by showing publicly what has gone on in your heart. Now, there's a phrase here that most of our English translations, uh, right after it says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, it says, for the remission of sins or for the forgiveness of sins. And it can sound like what Peter is saying, that you have to be baptized in order for your sins to be forgiven. Well, the rest of the New Testament, Peter himself, is very clear that baptism is not required for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, we could look at John 3.16 or John 3.36 or Romans 4.1-17 or Romans 11.16 or Galatians 3.8-9 or Ephesians 2.8-9 or 1 Peter 3.12 or any number of passages that we could look at that make it clear. Forgiveness of sins is given to us by faith. So how then do we reconcile this phrase here, for the remission of sins, right after that phrase, baptism? Well, there are a couple things that could be going on here. One is that this phrase, there in verse 38, if you look at your text, right after the word repent, the phrase, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, that little phrase could be kind of a parenthetical aside, Luke does this in his writing sometimes. John did it in his writing in the gospel where he sort of inserts comments about what's going on. And so Luke is adding instructions for his reader Theophilus maybe and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then for the remission of sins attaches back to that word repent. The reason that some think this is what's going on is the the singular and plural words in the text. So the the verb repent is plural. So is the rest of the verse after the words for the forgiveness of sins. That little parenthetical phrase, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, is all singular. Every one of you be baptized, all singular. So there's a slight shift in person there. Another way we can understand this verse is that final phrase, for the remission of sins, the word, the preposition for, can be translated a variety of ways. In fact, most commonly it's translated to or toward or into. Another way that it's translated commonly is on account of or because of. And so I think the most likely explanation of what's going on here is that Luke is saying, look, you need to repent and be baptized because your sins have been forgiven. 
So baptism is sort of this expression of what has happened inwardly. Now, repentance and forgiveness of sins, those are inward things. Nothing visible happens with those, does it? Right? When we repent, nobody, nobody sees what happened in my heart. When my sins are forgiven, no, nobody sees that happen. But baptism is the opportunity to make inward, invisible things outwardly visible. To tell the world, this is what has happened. I've turned from my sin and I've trusted in Christ and he's washed away my sins. Now I'm ready to live for Jesus Christ. And so they're encouraged to be baptized. The other gift of verse 38 is not only the forgiveness of sins, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit. These two things come. And so this is the beauty of what we see in the early church is their sins are washed away. They receive the Holy Spirit and they're unified around their commitment to Christ. I mean, those are the foundational things. And it's beautiful. As they hear this message of Jesus, they repent and turn to him. Verse 39, Peter continues to explain that this promise is to you and to their children and to anyone, even those who are far off. And the idea is that anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ can receive the promise of forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Anyone who believes can receive these things. So Peter's encouraging them. Now remember, the gathered group listening to Peter's sermon, they're not all from Jerusalem. Remember, they've pilgrimed in, they've traveled in to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, for this feast. And so these 3,000 who trust in Christ on this day are from all over. Remember, that's what made the, the gift of tongues so significant. They were speaking in all of these foreign languages because such a variety of people had gathered. And so as Peter encourages them here, it may be that their children were back at home, that their families were far away, that other loved ones hadn't come with them to Jerusalem. So the idea here is, look, this message needs to spread. Take it with you. And anyone who trusts in Christ, anyone who repents of their sin and believes in Jesus, will have their sins forgiven and will receive the Holy Spirit. How encouraging to these new believers to hear that. So the message of Jesus as God and Savior calls us to repent. When we hear the truth about something, it leads us to say, well, if I was wrong, then I need to make that known. I need to let them know. I remember one of my early sermons here at church. I had made a mistake, said something in my speaking that was wrong. And honestly, I don't remember uh, whether I had it in my notes wrong or whether it was just a slip of the tongue. All I remember is that after my sermon, a kind soul in the congregation came to me and said, um, you said something in your sermon that I don't think is quite right, very gently. And uh, they, they opened the scriptures and we looked at it together. And I said, oh no, did I say that? Oh, I'm so sorry that I messed that up. I need to make that right. And so the time we still had an evening service. And so in the evening service, I was able to say and share, you know what? I said something this morning that is not correct. Notice this verse in scripture. This is what the word teaches. I stand corrected. Thank you for pointing it out to me. And on we went. Why? Because when the truth comes to light, we must yield. We must yield. 
as the message of Jesus, as God and Messiah comes to bear on the hearts of these people, the Spirit presses in on them and helps them to see the reality that they participated in the death of Christ. And isn't this a real part of our understanding of the gospel? Think back to the way you maybe came to faith in Christ. And the way that God, by His Spirit, pressed on your hearts the reality of the fact that, wait a second, it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. I I may not have been there that day crying, crucify Him, but my lies and my lust and my pride and my hypocrisy Jesus had to pay for those things. That he who knew no sin became sin for me, that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. And when God takes the truth of the gospel and brings it to bear on our hearts, we begin to realize, oh, it was my sin that put him there. We sang it together in And Can It Be, right? That I should gain That this one would die for me? That he would bear my sins on the cross? Maybe it's that you've never heard that message about the Lord Jesus Christ. That though you have sinned, committed acts of wrong against a holy God, and now forevermore you fall short of His perfect righteousness and can never be in His perfect kingdom without sin, that there is also a Savior who is God. And that He loved you so much that He came to earth and lived a sinless life, the life that you could never live. And that He died on the cross in your place meaning that your sins were literally put on His shoulders and that the the whipping and the nails and the pain and the spear were all felt by Him as payment for your sin. That this Jesus, whom you crucified, is both God and can be your Savior. If you'll trust in Him today, The message of Peter falls to us just as it did those years ago that this Jesus whom we crucified is both Lord and Christ and if we will turn from our sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did for us, we too will have our sins forgiven and will receive the Holy Spirit. Would you trust in Him today? If you have trusted in Christ as Savior, then Peter's instructions are clear. The next step after that is then to make public what has happened inwardly through baptism. That by going down under the water and coming back up again, we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. We say publicly, I'm turning away from my sin and my life, and I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now I want to live for Him. I'm identifying with His death, burial, and resurrection And I want to live for Jesus. Maybe that's the next step you need to take. Having trusted in Christ as Savior, to publicly declare that you have repented of your sin and believed in Him and now want to live for Him. If you have done these things, you've trusted in Christ and you've been baptized, 
The whole book of Galatians begs the question, well, then if you live through the Spirit, why would you walk in the old ways any longer? You see, our salvation calls us to continue to walk in repentance, continually turning from our sin and living for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there's hardly anything more foundational to the Christian life than the heart attitude, the mindset of repentance. To keep daily turning away from my sin and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. That every time God helps me see my sin, I renounce it and draw near to Him because of the forgiveness of sins. Dear one, are you hanging on to bitterness or anger today? Are you unwilling to trust God to judge justly in your situation? Will you refuse to extend forgiveness just as God has forgiven you? Look to Jesus. See the kindness of God in the gospel and repent. Denounce your sin and turn to Him again. Are you harboring discontentment, that underlying dissatisfaction with what God has given, your spouse, your job, your home, your health, your situation, your finances, your singleness? You're unhappy with what God has provided, and so you lust for more. Look to Jesus. See the kindness of God in the gospel, the one who gave you his son. Repent of your discontentment and find satisfaction in God? Are you rehearsing your worries over and over? What if this happens or what if this doesn't happen? Do you find yourself relying on your control of things and quite uncomfortable when you aren't in control and things don't go your way? Are you having trouble trusting God with the potential outcomes in your life? Do you fill your life with precautionary preparations? You've thought through every potential and have a plan. Dear friend, be anxious for nothing. Give your requests to God. See the kindness and goodness of God displayed in the gospel that He gave you His Son. He will provide all things for you. Turn from your anxiety and trust in Him. Is your life driven by what people think of you? Are you sensitive to the looks that people give you? Are you aware of who is watching you, maybe even at this moment? Are you pretty sure you know what they're thinking? Look instead to your judge in heaven, who, through his Son, by faith, has declared you righteous. See His kindness and turn to Him today. Repent and believe His promises. The message of Jesus as God and Savior calls us to repent. Number two today, the presence of God's Spirit compels us to connect with His church. In verses 41 and 42, we have Luke's summary here. He's just kind of describing what happened. He says, those who gladly received his word were baptized. That day, about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. 
excuse me, I read 41 and 42. I intended to read 40 and 41. So here's 40 so we can get the right text here. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. This is Luke kind of saying, well, Peter went a little long. Let me summarize. (laughs) With many other words, right? He testified and exhorted. But the summary is be saved from this perverse generation. What this means is kind of what Jesus meant it when he taught, right? Remember, he talked about the generation around him being a perverse generation, a crooked generation. And what that meant is that though they were living in the very presence of the Messiah, they were stiff-necked and hard-hearted. They would not believe. And so when Peter says, be saved from this crooked, perverse generation, he's saying... Step away from the hard-hearted, stiff-necked people around you who are rejecting their Messiah and be added to this group who is receiving the Word, who is believing in this Messiah. Be tender-hearted. Repent. So they're called away from one group and into another group. Those who believed... We're baptized. So again, baptism is the outward expression of what happened inwardly. They'd received the message about Jesus and so declared it publicly. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. How did they track this? Well, of course, through baptism. You, You can count how many people are baptized. You can't really count how many people repent during a sermon. But they come and they say, I want to be baptized. And so we see this beautiful picture of the early church here. The people who believed, as Jesus had promised, had received the gift of the Holy Spirit. That gift is what's called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And as we learn later in the New Testament, it's not clear yet at this point. But as the New Testament unfolds, we understand that it was that presence of the Spirit that made them members of the universal church, the body of Christ. And so, you and I today, if you've trusted in Christ and Savior, are brothers and sisters with these dear believers here in Acts chapter 2. Why? Because we have God's Spirit. We're baptized with the Spirit and are part of the universal church. But we also see the beginning of the local church here. Because as they're baptized, as they're visibly counted and seen, they're added to the number of followers of Christ there in Jerusalem, the local church. And so spirit baptism adds us to the body of Christ. Water baptism is what happens when we're added to the local church. We display outwardly what has happened inwardly and we're counted among the believers in Jesus. This is a beautiful picture of the work of God's Spirit. The Spirit compelled them inwardly to become members of the body of Christ. There was no stopping that. That just happened automatically when they trusted in Jesus. And then that led to their water baptism and connecting with other believers there in the church. So again, it's a work of God, but what's our role? We're added to the church. We connect with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. When I was in high school, I participated in marching bands. Some of you I know are participating in that even now. Kind of a fun adventure. I grew up in Illinois, and uh, so one of the opportunities our marching band had was to travel to the, the largest university in Illinois, the University of Illinois. In fact, we grew up 
that was the U of I to us. Uh, of course, here in Iowa, that's different, right? Uh, Missionary Park can testify to that. U of I here is the University of Iowa, which I think they actually played each other yesterday, if I remember right. We won't talk about that. Uh, anyway, so I had the opportunity to go to the U of I, the University of Illinois, as a member of my marching band, and there was a small group of us that were able to go. And what was happening was marching bands from all over the state of Illinois were gathering and had the chance during the halftime show of this uh, Illinois football game, we all together got to take the field, play a song together, and then march off the field. So hundreds of high school bands, who knows, maybe thousands of high school students gathered at this uh, performance. So uh, the day before, we had a rehearsal Uh, to make sure everything would go smoothly, to make sure we could, you know, march on the field at the right time, and the song went okay, and then march off the field again. And uh, and so we we went through this rehearsal, and at some point, I don't remember, I had to use the restroom, or I forgot something in my trumpet case, who knows, but I stepped away from my high school group, and so I took care of things, and, you know, all done doing whatever I was doing, and turn around, and there's just this field of high school students who, you know, who knows who they are. And so there was this moment, it's like, where was our group again? Now, I, where were we lined up? Was it near the 50-yard line? Maybe it was near the 20-yard line, but which 20-yard line was it? And so I began trying to remember where our group is, and then it occurred to me, remembered, okay, wait a second, we all wore similar shirts. So I began, you know, searching through the crowd, looking for my RMHS high school shirt, right? Where are my friends? Where's my group? You know, looking for the right shirt. Finally, I found my band again and could participate in the rehearsal because I'd I'd seen the right shirt. It's what unified us. It's what brought us together. This is a very poor illustration of what happens in the body of Christ. When God's Spirit comes to us, that's the unifying presence of the church. We're called out of the generation of people who are hard-hearted and stiff-necked. And so it becomes foundational to us that we are tender-hearted and quick to respond to the Spirit's work in us. And it's the presence of God's Spirit that connects us to one another. Where are my brothers and sisters who have God's Spirit? Ah, there they are. Now, that's invisible to a degree. And yet, we see the Spirit's presence in the church. Again, as we unfold the rest of the New Testament, we see the Spirit shows up in a variety of ways. One of the greatest ways the Spirit shows up is in ongoing repentance. That as the word comes to bear in my life, it's a sign the Spirit's in me if I have a tender heart and respond with confession and getting right with God and with my brothers and sisters. We also know about the fruit of the Spirit, that when we see love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and compassion and so on and so forth, here in the body of Christ, we're seeing God's Spirit and we're drawn to one another. This is the beauty of of the church and what God does as he connects us with one another. So friends, I encourage you to remember you've been saved out of hard-heartedness. That's what you've been saved from. You're not like the world anymore. And so be tender-hearted 
as now you've been saved into the body of Christ, the people of God who have His Spirit and respond to His Word. And then I encourage you to connect. Connect with the body of Christ. It's difficult for us to connect with the body of Christ globally, and certainly we can't do anything to connect with the body of Christ that we read about in Acts chapter 2. Don't know those believers. We'll see them one day. So when the New Testament talks about connecting to the local church, we, we know them as the one another commands. It's primarily speaking of local churches where you see and know others with whom you can connect. Oh, there's a person who has God's Spirit. There's one that I can sacrifice for. I can be patient with them. I can forgive them. I can warn them. This is the fellowship of God's people here in the church. And so I encourage you to connect. What's your next step? Maybe it's as simple today as filling out a connect card, letting us know that you're here so we can follow up and connect with you and draw you into the life of God's people here in Grimes. Maybe for you, it's that you need to trust in Christ as Savior. Put your faith in the one who died for you. Maybe for you, it's that then you need to display that publicly by being baptized. Maybe it's time for you to connect with the church through membership. To make it clear outwardly, not only that you're inwardly a believer and you're a member of the body of Christ, but that you're a member of a local church where you're held accountable and you have other brothers and sisters that you are serving on a regular basis. Maybe for you it's not membership, but it's time to get involved, to begin ministering God's grace to one another. Or maybe for you it's to begin making a disciple. You know, all this goes back to Jesus' command in Matthew 28, 19, 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus, by His Spirit, is present in this place, helping us to accomplish what He's told us to do. Connect with His church. Finally, number three today, the Spirit and the Word empower growth as we gather, as we gather. What I want you to notice in verses 42 through 47 is how many times this idea of togetherness is mentioned. Just scan down through these verses. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And fear came upon every soul as many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continued daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So there's all of this fellowship and togetherness going on. And we notice a couple things that they're fellowshipping around. The word is central. It's listed first there in verse 42, the apostles' doctrine. Now, I call that the word because at this point in Acts chapter 2, it would have included some of the Old Testament scriptures and then a lot of what Jesus had taught the apostles, right? At this point in Acts 2, historically speaking, we don't have the New Testament written down yet. But what is the New Testament? 
It's the teachings of Jesus Christ and his apostles written down for us. And so what's called the apostles' doctrine here for us is the word of God, the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was present in their fellowship, but that's not really something we do. It's just something that needs to be present and studied and taught as we gather. This is central to our fellowship, the word of God. And so that's why you hopefully hear it preached and taught and studied at just about every gathering of our church. It's what we do. We study the teachings of Christ, the one we have devoted ourselves to. Not only that, there's fellowship. This word means that they shared in common. Their gathering was was rooted in this kind of commonness. And it's difficult to fully pin the word down and what it means, just that they shared things in common. And I think it's deeply related to the presence of God's Spirit in them, that they experienced a unity with one another that stretched beyond their differences. The next word there is that they broke bread together. And this could be a reference to the Lord's Supper, communion. In fact, later in the New Testament, it does refer to that, first communion. But at this time in the New Testament, I tend to think it more just refers to a meal. In fact, in Judaism, this was a common way just to refer to a meal together because breaking bread was the first thing they did when they ate together. And so I think that's likely what it's referring to here is just sharing meals together. In fact, down in verse 46, it seems to even, even more strongly have that sense. Breaking bread from house to out, house to house, they ate their food with gladness. So it just sounds like they're eating together. They're fellowshipping around the table together. And then finally, in verse 42, you've got their prayers. They're praying with one another. Again, this is all spirit-empowered unity. And we've already seen how prayer unified the early believers as they talked to the Lord in one accord. And that's not one vehicle. That's a one mind that they shared the same heart and the same goals. They aligned themselves with God. Prayer. We know that the Spirit is doing this because of verse 43. God is working a sense of awe, and the apostles are doing signs and wonders to confirm, I think, not only to the believers, but especially those who had not yet believed, that this is where God is at work, that the teaching of the apostles is trustworthy, that they can see the Spirit of God at work, and they need to also accept Jesus as their Messiah. And so the Spirit is work is at work in the gatherings of the early church. Verse 44, they had all things in common. They were together. Verse 45 breaks this down even more. They even sold some of their possessions. I mean, you understand what's going on here. This is not communism. This is not like sell everything, have a big pot, and then everybody take what they need from that pot. Remember what this group is like. This involved, to a large degree, we don't know percentages, but to a large degree, pilgrims who had traveled into Jerusalem. So they're away from home. They didn't plan to come to Jerusalem and trust in Christ. You know, there's just going to be this trip for the day of Pentecost and then go back home. But now something new is happening, and so they're away from home. And so however many believers are local to Jerusalem begin meeting the needs of the out-of-towners who don't have food and don't have clothing and don't have a place to stay. And so they're caring for one another. Oh, you're from that far away? Well, stay with us and we'll feed you. And 
Like, well, you got that need? Well, we don't quite have enough money. We'll, we'll, we'll sell the car. And, well, okay, they didn't have a car back then, but you understand, right? They're, they're willing to get rid of things if needed in order to meet the needs of their new brothers and sisters in Christ. And notice also that these are not like childhood friends. If this is a group of Jews from all over that have just come to Jerusalem, all they have in common is their Jewish faith. In fact, based on the whole speaking in tongues things, they may not even have the same heart language. It's likely that they could find a common language to speak to one another. But different cultures from different regions, different backgrounds, different ways of doing life, different politics. I mean, you name it, they probably had a difference there, except for Judaism and now especially their loyalty to Christ their forgiveness of sins, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so this group of diverse believers in Jesus were just delighted to be together and caring for one another. This was not some club around people that spoke the same language or people that just enjoyed this hobby. This was people devoted to Christ and ready to sacrifice in order to be together. And so, verse 46, they continued daily in the temple, and they're going to worship daily to to rejoice in what God has done. They're they're eating meals together. And again, some of that's related to the fact that some of them didn't have homes in Jerusalem, and so they needed a place to stay and to eat. But they're getting together, and there's just gladness. There's no, oh boy, this meal's going to cost a lot, and they ate far more than I expected, and it's really getting old having them stay with us in our house here. When are they going to go back home, you know, and just... No, they're just just glad and thankful that the Lord has forgiven their sins and has given them His Spirit, and they're so excited to be with one another around the Word and around worship and around teaching from the Scriptures. And so verse 47, their lives just overflow in praise to God. And not only are they enjoying being with one another, but actually their, their favor spreads all through Jerusalem. Favor with all the people. Like, what what are these pilgrims still sticking around for? I mean, there's just something going on in town here. People are like all eating together and having a good time. And they're going to the temple every day. I mean, we're not required to do that, right? What is going on? As God begins to grow His church and Their favor just spreads in town as people see their love for one another. The Lord, the end of verse 47 there, continues to add to the church those who are being saved. Daily, more are coming to Christ as their testimony spreads, as this this church grows, more and more are being added to the church. And note, again, it's the Lord who does it. Now we know they had to have been sharing the gospel message, and surely the apostles were preaching the message of Christ, and so on and so forth, but the Lord is adding them to the church. It's the Word and the Spirit at work among God's people, and that grows the church. So friends, you and I keep our 
tender hearts from which we were called out of into repentance to turn from our sin and to devote ourselves to Christ, staying tender-hearted to the Spirit's work in us. We connect with our brothers and sisters in Christ, yes, of course, globally, but most often locally with a church. The Spirit has made us members of the body of Christ, and so we join a local church where we can love and give and share, and our community can see by our love that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And as we gather around the Word and the teachings of Scripture and the fellowship of the Spirit, God grows His church. This is how it works. As we gather, as we study the Word, we see the Spirit at work. In fact, a phrase we use for our Sunday gatherings is displaying and delighting in our glorious God together. Because not only do we see what God is like in His Word and delight in Him, but we see Him in one another and delight in Him. And we rejoice in what God is doing among us. So I encourage you to participate in gatherings. First and foremost, our gathering as a church. Hey, you're here. I'm preaching to the wrong people, right? You're here. Praise God to come and gather as often as you are able but then to gather outside of these gatherings as well. Now, again, it was a unique scenario. Travelers in town and needed a place to stay. But how precious is our time together around a meal, fellowshipping around the Word and sharing how God's been at work in my heart and in your heart. Consider doing some one-to-one Bible reading with someone else in the church. Be sure to be here when we participate in the Lord's Supper and you can fellowship around that table. Be sure to be present when we've gathered for prayer so you can pray to the Lord with one another, with your brothers and sisters. Be sure to gather in worship so you can enjoy praising God with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be sure to gather so you can be reminded of needs and how you can care for those who are hurting, how you can rejoice with those who are rejoicing. This is how God grows His church. And we have the privilege of participating. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we praise you. We join with our brothers and sisters from from history past, from Acts chapter 2, who are just overjoyed to be together and praising you for what you have done. I praise you for what you have done in our congregation. Thank you for these brothers and sisters who, in their lives, have at some point place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. I rejoice in your work. Thank you for the fruit of the Spirit that I see among them. I praise you for what you're doing. Oh, Father, help us to love one another and to show the world that Jesus is the Savior that you sent. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.